could you please pronounce your name correctly for me? It's Monica Holman. Now, Monica Holman is not an incredibly Norwegian name, but you're in Norway. Yeah. Is it Norwegian? From what I know, yeah, it is Norwegian. Yeah. Maybe the Monica part is inspired, I don't know, from the French Monique. I used to like to think so when I was a kid. <laughs> All right. Your parents never told you where they got their name? No, I know there was some sort of disagreement as to what they were supposed to call me. I think this was their middle ground. <laughs> Do you know what the other names were? One was Janne, and I don't know the other ones. No. I know if I was a girl, I was going to be Robin. That's a nice name for a girl, also for a boy. Yeah, sure. Well, my dad wanted to name me George Oliver so that my initials would have been God, and he, he would have been the father of God, and, and he enjoyed that. But my mother disagreed with that position, so. Yeah, I can see that. Well, my father's also a priest, so he was really into that idea. And he wouldn't consider that blasphemy? He's an Episcopal. They, they, they don't think of a blasphemy is not a thing to them. <laughs> All right. So first thing that interested me when I saw your, your Instagram page actually was you are a curator, a freelance curator, editor, writer, and concert junkie. Yeah. Now. The one that most interests me, of course, is Concert Junkie. I would imagine. <laughs> Could you elaborate on that, please? Well, yeah, of course. It's not something that I do professionally. It's my hobby, so to speak. And the reason why I chose Concert Junkie as a word, it's because, of course, now with the COVID and everything, it's been this whole lockdown and no concert. But up until then, my sort of favorite pastime is going to concerts. You know, usually within literature, you talk about book autumn or all that. It, in Norwegian, they call it bokhösten. But we also have this term called konserthösten. So what's going to be up this next fall or this next autumn? And I would normally like Google around all the venues in Oslo, what's coming up here, what's here. You know, open all the tabs in the browser to see what's happening. And then I don't only go to see the ones that I know of or the bands that I know from before or my favorite bands that I would normally follow. But I would also read the descriptions that the venue would put out of the bands and like, okay, hmm, this sounds interesting. Maybe I'll go to this one. Or they list these and these and these bands as references and I like several of them. So let's check this out. And of course, the consequence of this is a lot of new discoveries in terms of music and in terms of bands. The good thing about this is that all the smaller venues, you know, the club venues, not the bigger venues, the tickets are still fairly cheap. So it's actually possible to go see two or three or four concerts a week, which is sort of, I don't know, the most that I've been to. And I've discovered so many new bands that I've never heard about before and of course, some I'm not listening to anymore, and and others have remained favorites, you know, led down new paths also, and even more bands. So that's why I list myself also as a concert junkie. And now with everything opening up again, I'm going back to this. If I get bored, I open all the venues and what's coming, what's coming? Because I used to be a roadie. So I used to do the lights and sound and tour around with rock and roll bands. So I, I saw far too many concerts in my lifetime. I still can't get enough. It's a never-ending story. I'm very surprised I can do audio like uh, work like this, like an edit and everything, because of the amount of like large concerts that I like stood right in front of the speakers for hours on end. Yeah, no, I do have really good earplugs now. I think what I miss the most, and this is of course something I never thought I would actually miss this, but you know the sensation, the feeling of. The experience of actually being in this massive crowd with a lot of strangers and you're all close together, like really close to, I don't know, strange, sweaty people. I would never think that was something I was going to miss, but here we are. Oh, I missed it long before COVID. I mean, I grew up in Washington, D.C. with the, the, the straight edge, like Fugazi and Minor Threat, that whole crowd. So like all about the mosh pits when I was a kid. So, you know, that was my thing. And I miss that. But those are a long time ago. So for me, you're still young. So enjoy. I will. I will for sure. 
Excellent. Now, you work as a curator at, please pronounce the name of the place, because I, I try not to butcher pronunciation, so I just ask the guests to always pronounce things. Yeah, it's called Nitya. Nitya? No, no, Nitya. No, it's not the ch. It's Nitya. So it's like Ninja, but then you would <laughs> exchange the N for a T. So that's like the short version. And of course, in Norwegian, it's Nitya Center for Samtidskunst. And in English, it would be Nitya Center for Contemporary Art. Lovely. There's actually a story behind this name. Do share. Bring it up. Do share. So before, we used to be Akershus Kunst Center. And this is, of course, before we moved to this brand new building, which I'm sure you've already read all about. And the name of the previous institution, Akershus, is derived from a county in Norway called Akershus, which doesn't exist anymore. And that's another story with all the counties merging and everything. So when we, after 12 years of long work, and this is a whole other story, managed to get this new building built, three counties were merging and three municipalities were merging. And so all the geographical names ceased to exist in a way, or at least they didn't really give any sense. So then with the new building and all this, we figured, okay, maybe now we actually need a new name. So we started doing some research and we also asked around and we asked around on social media and we got these tips about there's this river going through Lillestrøm and in, I don't know, way back in like, almost the Viking age, I think, or the Norse, not the mythology, but in Norse, the name of the river used to be Nitja or Nita. So this is how the name actually links, links our institution to the place where we actually, where we're located geographically. So that's why, because being linked to where we are in Lillestrøm is quite important to us and not having this name that doesn't really mean anything. And Akershus, as I said, ceased to exist. So that's why you're laughing. <laughs> well, I'm laughing because I, I'm sitting here like counties or cities or districts, whatever you're talking about, like ceasing to exist and merging. Like that just doesn't happen in most places. Like I, I, I've in the, you know, I grew up in the United States and like they pretty much set their boundaries and that they were like, that's it. We're not changing for a couple hundred years. Yeah. So that's very odd to me. The, the idea of like, oh yeah, you know, the counties and cities, they just merged. I know, yeah, I know too little of all the processes, but of course they are political and there are some ideas that this is going to make things more efficient, it's centralizing, but I'm not so sure about that. But the point is we have a new building and therefore now we also have a new name. All right. And the, the central idea behind the, is it, is it a Kunst, what is it? It's, it's a center, so it's not a Kunst. Or... It's an art center. And it, this is quite unique in the Norwegian context, I think. Or not unique in the Norwegian context. This is unique for the Norwegian context. So basically, in the mid-80s, there were established one Kunst center or art center per county. So 15 in total. And this was part of cultural policies. And also this idea of having professional contemporary art everywhere, all over the country. You know, the easiest comparison might be, for instance, to Sweden, where most of the inhabitants and it's all centralized to the south of Sweden. Whereas in Norway, it's decentralizing. People are living all over the country, up in the mountains, on the far end of the coast, far up north, all the way to the south. And all of these should have access to professional contemporary art. So then all of the art centers were established. And they all differ in sizes in terms of how many employees they have and what their sort of main tasks are. But they're mostly publicly funded, either by the counties and or by the municipalities. And of course, have to, you know, apply for public funding per project, per exhibition, and sponsorships, and so on and so forth. We're more similar to a Kunsthalle than a gallery, for instance. Well, I've because I've learned about Kunsthals, I've learned about Kunstfernings, and that's as far as my Kunst knowledge goes. 
Yeah, so this is Kunstcenter and it's the third edition to your now broadening knowledge. And that's what I'm here for. So that's very exciting. All right. So the stuff that you all exhibit, so you say contemporary works. Now, I read I read on your website, but I'm going to assume the listeners have not gone to the website and checked on it. So it's it's contemporary local, regional, and international. Is that correct? In terms of who we exhibit, you ask? Yes. Yeah. We don't have this sort of mandate that we have to show local or regional artists. When it comes to Nitya Center for Contemporary Art, we normally, up until now, it's been, our focus has been on younger Norwegian artists. Okay, wait, slow down, because that's a, that's a hot button topic right there. Younger. Is that, is that a, is that an age specific thing or is that a amount of years in the art practice thing i guess it's i was gonna add a but <laughs> up until now it's been limited to not limited to but it's been more about age than the amount of years you've been in sort of the art world but that being said it's been probably i mean to put it differently we've shown quite a few younger artists who have only just graduated from the academies. So whether that's meaning that they are, you know, 40 years old and having a change of career, or if they were 25, actually this is their up until now only career. But in the old building, we've had quite a few solo shows with younger artists, and that was their first shows. So wait, 25 is graduating from college? I was just saying a number. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm like, I'm like, I graduated from college at a very different age. Like, that seems weird. Yeah, me too. I guess it would be closer to 30. But the point is that, I mean, we've also shown more established artists, more mid-career. And I guess like any other institution would say, where our main focus is to show whatever we believe is interesting and relevant and important at the moment. Of course, defined by us and our perception and, you know, what kind of glasses are we wearing? Love it. All of those things are excellent topics that are, of course, most interest to me because I'm also a practicing artist myself. So, of course, with the kinds of stuff I want to know is how do artists get to be in exhibitions in places like yours? That depends on the institution. Our program is mainly curated, which means that we, of course, do research. We look around and we invite artists to come show with us, but we also accept applications like open calls and throughout the year. 20 years ago, the whole program was put together by applications only. But this is something that has changed throughout the last years and now it's a mix. So like, is there a percentage like 50-50, like half curated, half open calls, 75% curated, 25% open calls? It depends on so many things. It depends on the applications. It depends if we plan to have an exhibition with an open call. It depends, you know, who are the active artists at that moment? Who is graduating? What's the hot topics in society at that time? Yeah, those parameters are not like set in stone. Well, I, okay. Well, like when I think of a museum, so like I'm comparing you to a museum. So let me like take a step back and rethink that. But so, like, how long in advance do you all program, I guess, would be the first question. So, is it a year faster? Like, how long ahead do you look? It's around two years. Two years, one and a half. It depends. Sometimes, well, no, not as much as three years. But usually we try to plan ahead so that the artist will have also enough time to apply for funding. Because we, I mean, our budgets are limited. Of course. So we would also, <laughs> whose aren't? So we would have to also make sure that the artists have time to to apply for further funding. Okay. So that's the thing. So because you're not sort of some big, posh, white ivory tower kind of place that can fund everything kind of projects, you, you all have, you, you have your own operating budget. You invite, get, you invite artists, but the artists need to seek their own support in whatever way they can. In addition to what we can provide. Of course, they get exhibition fees, and we do help out with production as much as we can. So it's a mix. But it's never enough, though. 
it's never enough. It's never enough. <laughs> I mean, if somebody were to throw me like, you know, half a million dollars, like I'll spend it. Of course you will. <laughs> it's never enough. Yeah. yeah. Give me more money. I will spend that more money. For sure. Yeah. We're all very good at that. All right. But so there are open calls, but, but I'm more interested. Okay. The open calls are great. I want to come back to that. But first, I want to know a little bit more about sort of the curatorial process, because you, you're you not just a curator at the center, but you're also a freelance curator. You also write for some journals, things like this. So you're very active in the community and what's going on. The thing I always wonder about, sort of me sitting here as an artist, I make some works, but like, how do you as a curator connect to the new artist or find the new topic. So like, where do the, the inspirations come from for your ideas and, and how do you find these artists? <laughs> Everywhere in a way. No, of course it's, you try to stay updated in terms of seeing all the shows, seeing all the exhibitions, of course, in Oslo, which is where I live. And I mean, most of us at the center live here in Oslo. Prior to the whole COVID, my aim would actually be to see every exhibition in Oslo. I was like, I have to see every exhibition in Oslo. They might not be that good, all of them, but at least I've seen them. And then you know what's going on and you know who's working with what. And you get sort of a bigger picture of whatever's happening at that time. Of course, again, normal times you would try to travel see other exhibitions elsewhere but if you can't go anywhere you follow institutions on social media of course check out web pages you know you get newsletters and of course you stay in touch with people who live other places in other cities and that's sort of the national context and then you go to biennials and to see even more well, see, okay, my concern is this, like, uh, and this may totally just be a me thing. Maybe nobody else feels this way, but I can make friends really well. So, like, I can show up at an art opening. I'll know everybody by the time I leave there. Like, I'm really good at being a social butterfly, but I'm really bad at keeping up with them. So, like, how important is that? And, and like, how can you do it the right amount? Because... I found in my own career, like some people sort of maybe I quote unquote sort of maybe nagged a little bit too much. Like I like sent them a few too many emails or a few too many like, hey, you got an exhibition coming up. You know, I got new work kind of things. And then on the other hand, I, there are others that I probably should have kept in better contact with that I didn't, that I missed out on some great opportunities because, well, I screwed that up the other way. So like what what's the right amount of sort of keeping connected well, I think that depends. It's individual. To me, I mean, I'm addicted to social media and to Instagram. I instantly, I mean, I scroll my way through the day. And that's also, you know, where you see things. And I appreciate both artists, other curators, institutions, galleries, you know, everyone working in the art field, sharing whatever they're working on, for instance. And for me personally, I would also easily sort of filter away whatever email I felt was too much or, okay, I don't have time to look at this right now, or, you know, just scroll past it. Because at the end of the day, it's this is the most efficient way to actually to be updated. And that, and of course, talking to people. Talking to people. I mean, the, the, the network is always the primary, you know, handshakes and, and conversations and stuff. I mean, that's, of course. But well, okay, so let's, let's take it a little bit step back. How do you all come up with your programming? So like you talked about like the interesting topics of the time and whatever's sort of being talked about, like, but you're, but you have to plan two years in advance. Mm. So like, how do you find the right topics that will be interesting in two years? That's a continuously ongoing discussion. We're a team here at Nitya. So consisting of Rikke Kommissar, who is the director and she's like me. She's constantly researching, scrolling, looking, seeing exhibitions, being, I mean, all of us are, actually. And then it's Turana Samuelsen, who is head of exhibitions, and he's also curating. And it's Martina Petrelli, who is also a curator. And then the four of us have this, you know, at the morning coffee, we have this thing here at Nitya. We always sit down to have a coffee in the morning, and then, you know, you start talking. If it's a Monday, you discuss whatever you 
seen during that weekend? If any of us went to have, you know, this gallery round, did you see anything exciting? If you did, who, what, why? And sometimes that maybe fit into, you know, some sort of vague idea of an exhibition that you're working on, or maybe it doesn't. And we do this, which means that some things can suddenly just pop up and it makes sense. And we also have regular meetings, you know, trying to sort of pin down some, I don't know, keywords or trying to discuss what should be the focus for this and that year or should something be the focus. I mean, before the big move to the new building, we had in 2018 and in 2019, for those two years, for 2018, we had this sort of keyword or hashtag, if you want, uh, navigations as a kind of, yeah, a hashtag is actually a good expression for something to pin all the exhibitions on. And it was quite loose and quite open, but still it sort of it gave us an opportunity to not just curate each and every exhibition within its own entity, but to also see the, the whole year as a whole. So the whole exhibition year actually made sense and mapped this bigger picture. And for 2019, it was structures. And of course, these are two words who can mean so many things depending on how you define them. But it actually also, yeah, wrapped everything in this totality, which was both limiting and also focusing in a way. It was good. Okay. So you would sort of just come up with like a theme or a topic for a year and then try and structure within that year sort of different ways to look at that topic. We did that for those two years and for half of 2020 because we closed the old building by the end of August. That was the final exhibition. And for the opening year in the new building in Nitya, we haven't had this sort of keyword hashtag thing. And the reason for that is that this is the opening year. Maybe this is not the year where it's, you know, right to sort of narrow it down to one single word. Maybe it has to be something else completely. Well, okay. But then beyond that, one of the other things I think about when when exhibition spaces are trying to prepare their programming for the year, do you, what other kinds of considerations do you take into it? I'm going to be really stupid. I had this conversation with a, a, a director of a museum one time, and they told me like, well, in the summertime, they try and do cold color palettes in order to cool people off. And in wintertime, they try and do warm color palette exhibitions. I mean, it was really OCD to quite far extreme. But like, do you all take into what kind of things do you take into consideration when you say, okay, we want to have an exhibition of this person. And then when you try and choose like when in the course of the year, how does that even, you know, like how do you construct those ideas? Well, we don't curate by color, that's for sure, <laughs> or palette. Maybe the only thing is that it might not be so wise to have, you know, a video exhibition during summer, just because who would want to go inside in the black box to see a film when it's blistering? If it's very well air-conditioned, I would gladly do it. Yeah, yeah, okay, I see that. No, it's more about, you know, finding sort of a rhythm throughout the year. Maybe it has to do with doing a solo show and then group show, you know, alternating these kind of formats. Or maybe it has to do with one exhibition is more political or societal in a way. And then it's nice that the next one is more into the more formal aspect of visual arts. It depends. It's not really <laughs> one set answer to that, I think. It depends on the exhibitions you're supposed to puzzle together. Of course. Yeah. No, I, I didn't, but the, you know, I was asking your experiences of, of doing this. So like, that's all. Yeah. Well, okay. But you brought up group versus solo shows. Do you all also have like some sort of structure of saying like, okay, we do 50% group shows, 50% solo shows or, you know, is, or do you have like, I guess, cause you're also like somewhat government funded. I call it government, anything where it's a uh, tax money pays for it it's government so whether it's local tax money or 
government, federal tax money, it doesn't matter. But it's regional. Regional. Okay. You're regionally funded. Well, do, are, are there like are there parameters of like things you can and cannot do or things that you have to try to achieve? Do you have like targets of like we're not going to fund you unless you get X amount of my like certain gender or amount of people through the door or I mean I know of all these things for other grants and other places that they you know footfall and attendance and you know certain amount of women or minorities there or whatever kind of characteristics that people have to meet for other funding no no one's telling us what we can't and cannot show and no one is telling us what we can't and cannot do we are functioning very well on our own and we have to otherwise i mean that's the only way we can be a professional institution for visual art that being said of course you know politicians do have their wishes and their wants wait does that happen do politicians come and say hey i've got this great artist that you should exhibit you should have a show of this person does a politician ever come and say that (laughs) well maybe it's been said but i mean it that doesn't necessarily mean that we act upon that of course we don't (laughs) that would be horribly inappropriate Yes, it would. And so we've never done that. <laughs> okay, very very clear. Yeah. But I guess this is also, it's more about who should the institution be for and what function should the institution have in society, which is something that's really important to us here at Nitya. I mean, we, of course, we want big numbers, but not because the politicians tell us to have big numbers. But I mean, why else are we working here? We're not making exhibitions to sort of, to not be seen. Well, that's a great question. I mean, so what kind of answer have you come up with first? Like, what is the purpose of having these exhibitions? That's like asking the meaning of life. (laughs) No, I think the purpose is, of course, to show really good contemporary art that in some way make you think, makes you reflect upon whatever the artist is dealing with, but also to show art that triggers something in who's ever experiencing the art. I like to think that good contemporary art, or not necessarily contemporary, also historically, but good art makes you think. It's not something, you know, the wow pieces that where you instantly go wow, but then there's nothing more. That's not the really good art. <laughs> Well, I can think of a lot of art that I've seen that I continually think about and I continually dwell about, about how horrible it is. The absolute shit (laughs) has no merit whatsoever. And yet I can't keep dwelling on it and I keep thinking about it. Yeah. Okay. That's a good argument. But, you know, one keeps talking about all these layers and that contemporary art have layers and different meanings. And it's... To some extent, it's a cliche, but also if it's not multifaceted or if it only has one dimension, then it's, I dare say it might be a bit, not boring, but it stops, you know, you you hit an end at some point and there's nothing more there if it can be perceived in different ways. I'm also interested, you have freelance, curator, it's kind of obvious we haven't been talking about that, but editor and writer. I know what a writer is, but so like when you say editor, what does that mean? like? So you edit writing, like what? Uh, clarify editor and writer for me. Yeah, I've been co-editing this Norwegian art magazine for 10 years, Kunstforum, which is currently, well, not dead, but at least lying down with a broken back, as we say, due to budgets and funding. But I did that for 10 years. That's also where I started my whole writing and I've also been editor as a freelancer for a couple of books. The writing that you were doing, obviously, I can't read Norwegian, so I couldn't really read the the works. But were you writing like criticism, reviews? Like, what what's the kind of writing that you do within the arts? Well, it started out with reviews, and that's ten years ago. That was while I was still working. I only began working at Akershuskundsenter now Nitya, so I was doing this as in addition to studies, in addition to working here, and, you know, like we all do, in addition to, in addition to. And then I also did interviews with artists, and all of this was for Kunstforum, mainly. 
I've probably also done some for other magazines and exhibition texts and but you know after 10 years it's become so much so it's difficult to remember like right now okay well i've got sort of two questions with that the first one would be sort of if you were right were you writing like art reviews or art criticism because to me art criticism these days i don't feel like there's a lot of good criticism being offered I feel like basically like when people like something or want to say something nice, that'll be written. But if they have anything critical or in any way negative, even that just doesn't get written. So it's not, you know, it it just doesn't happen because it's not a, it's not a thumbs up. It's not a like on social media. And so they don't do what I would consider sort of true criticism. They only write happy, pleasant articles. I would say, I mean, I didn't really write art criticism as such, but I wasn't afraid to, you know, be slightly critical if something should be like pointed out or, but I mean, you don't want to be too negative. And I don't really think that's not serving either the artists nor the institution or, you know, the larger conversation about art. I totally agree. C- criticism should be constructive, not just m- malicious. I think it's important that art reviews or whatever writing about art can sort of inform, you know, the public conversation about this. I used to do art review slash criticism years ago, like 20 years ago. And to this day, there's this one artist that literally still like hates me because of a, a not not positive review I did of them 20 years ago. Personally, I'm just like, get over it. But they haven't gotten over it 20 years later. So I don't write art reviews or criticism anymore. It's not really compatible with being a curator and also not time-wise either. But I always found it more difficult to be critical towards if it was a solo show and and to be critical towards, you know, the artist's practice compared to being critical towards the curatorial concept. Because if it's a curatorial concept, then in a much larger extent, the curator has said, this is my intention, this is my idea, and this is the answer to that concept and idea. And so then as a critic, you have more to discuss in a way. But the artists are not necessarily saying, this is my idea, this is my, you know, they're often more vague, which is also a good thing. But then what do you criticize? Oh, we can always criticize. Like, we're human. We always criticize and judge and whatever. That's just innate in our beings, unfortunately. But... But within that, okay, so like you you have edited text also. You were talking about like even like statements for exhibitions and stuff like this. I am utterly fascinated by those because I am horrible at writing them. So how do you come up with like the right, I don't know, quality of text, the thing you're trying to express? Like what, what's the thing you're trying to achieve when you write for with an artist? Depends on the artist. All right. How can I clarify that? Okay. Give me an example. So tell me an an experience that you had in in doing some text with an artist that uh, either went really, really well or went really, really wrong. I'm really bad with remembering exact examples. So I need to be more general about this. But I guess when I've been doing this as a freelance you know, you're usually asked as a freelance writer, would you help me please with writing this exhibition text? And then either I've written it, you know, from the scratch, but still it's an artist asking for a text. So you want them to be happy with it also, but then you also have to be pleased with the text, of course. Other times they've come to me with I have this draft, I want to say this and this and this, it doesn't really make sense, or I need some help putting it all together. And then I can go in and sort of try to put it together in a better way. And then in the end, whether you're writing an exhibition text as a freelance or for an artist or as a curator in an institution, it needs to be clear in whatever it's trying to say. And I always say that my parents should 
understand what this is all about and they're not in the art world. So that's sort of the big test. Can this pass with someone who, who doesn't know art, who doesn't know your project, but can still read the language? And if it doesn't, then it has to be redone. Well, I mean, because that's where I'm getting to the point of this is like, I remember when I was a kid, I grew up around the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. And I remember going into exhibition halls and they had these big texts on the wall. And it was so many 50 cent words and intellectual words that I, and, and like references to, you know, Greek philosophy and mythology and like all these things. And I'm just sitting there like, I have absolutely no idea what was said by this, but it looked eloquent and super intellectual, but times have changed. And that it seems to not be the common way that, that people are presenting artwork anymore. It, it's, it seems to be much more of a, uh, try to engage people in some way to like to, to like pull at their heartstrings or or make them feel something from the text so that they sort of get something more of it. Like it's changed even just within my lifetime from super intellectual sort of highbrow to uh, the desire to connect is is sort of more seems to be more driving force these days. Yeah, absolutely. But I think it also has to do with who's sending the message, who's writing the text whose signature is going to be on the text. For instance, when we are writing the exhibition texts here at Nitya, you know, we're writing to an intellectual public as well. But, you know, you try to sort of reach everybody. And how do you do that? And then it's this sort of balance between saying to saying enough, but not over-explaining whatever you're showing, and also not saying too little so that, you know, normal people get scared away because they don't really, they get the sensation that, okay, I don't understand this. I'm just going to go. And then you want to connect. You want to connect with those people. You want to sort of give them something to hold on to. And you want to give them a way into the exhibition or into the concept or into the artist's practice. And then you really need to be really clear about whatever you're writing and communicating. Oh yeah, I do portfolio reviews also online. So like so I, I read these statements a lot and a lot of them are just so bad. But then and then every now and then like this amazing one comes through where you read it and you're like, oh my God, I got it. I totally get this why you created this year's work. But trying to find some quantifiable way to explain how to do that is so difficult because each project is unique, you know, depending on how expressive the work is, you, maybe you don't need to be as, as expressive in the text, or if this, if, if the work is incredibly abstracted, then maybe you need to be very, you know, you have to balance it to, to find some amount of like connection because the work may be minimalist abstract. And so there's not much to connect to. So you have to be very evocative and expressive in the text. And it's really hard. It is. And I don't think it's really one way of doing it. It's not one solution. I want one solution. I want somebody to give me a freaking step-by-step instructions, an Excel spreadsheet that says, do this and you will write a good statement there. That's what I want. Yeah. But what you're saying there, artist statement is something different than an exhibition text, for instance. More text for all of us to write. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think maybe we should try and limit the amount of words and keep it to, you know, the bare essentials. Ooh, with that, actually, what about titles? Because I, I used to work at a gallery and I remember there was this guy that submitted this work. The work was beautiful. And then his statement was crap and his titles were horrible, like totally inappropriate, made no sense, had no relation to anything, and totally destroyed the appreciation of the work. So how do you feel about titles? I've also made some mistakes with titles in my life <laughs> where I've titled something one thing and then like five years later, I'm like, fuck, that was a horrible title. I should go back and redo it. I've actually been chastised for some of my titles to the point that I was so embarrassed that I changed the titles. So how do you feel about titles? Well, I can get really annoyed by you know this untitled number one untitled number two you never do untitled number one number two because it looks like you only made two you do like untitled number 79 because you've worked so hard this is number 79 so you always use a bigger number 
No, I can get quite intrigued by titles and I'm tempted to say the longer the better. But then, of course, there's this discussion. Then you can almost say that the titles ends up as a kind of, you know, work of art on their own. And I guess I'm intrigued by that because I also have this thing for text-based art. Yeah. Yeah, more poetic titles. That's nice. You like poetic titles. I think I do. Yeah. I've actually never said this out loud before, but <laughs> but I think I do. Either poetic or if they're descriptive, of course, but they can also be descriptive in a nerdy way. You know, if it's an abstract painting and the title, maybe it's just, you know, the NCS code or something like that or something in binary, something like that. Yeah, geographical coordinates. Then, of course, it doesn't make sense to the viewer immediately. But once you get sort of an explanation, at least I would like, oh, wow, that's, yeah, I like that. Oh, well, like geographic GPS location or something. that, that's a, to me, that's a very legitimate title for a lot of works kind of things. But like, I'm thinking of just like the really ridiculous titles. But anyways, so I want to go back to you. We talked about open calls because I'm fascinated by this because don't get me wrong. Norway is a fascinating place. I would love to exhibit there at some point. So I want to understand, like, so what's your process for doing open calls? Like what I've never, I should be clear on this. Like I've never applied for exhibition. I have one. Well, no, I should rephrase that. I have applied for exhibitions. I've never received exhibitions, but mostly because I don't even understand what they want. So like when you do an open call, what is it you're looking for from us? I guess that depends from on the open call. But for instance, we recently, the past exhibition here, the previous one, sorry, was called Welcome to the Jungle. Guns and Roses, love it. Yes. And for that exhibition, we actually had an open call. And the reason for that was we wanted applications and also art projects to see, to get projects dealing with a specific topic, a specific subject matter. So the idea for that exhibition was to do or to present projects that in one way or another could sort of connect to, to Lillestrøm and to the city. Uh, but also, of course, projects not necessarily talking about Lillestrøm or the local aspects, which was also or could be seen as relevant in that context. So then we went out with an open call specifically asking for projects that in one way or the other could deal with this. Yeah. So that was a really specific open call. All right. I guess what I'm thinking more of goes to me, open calls that have a topic or like they're going to be a group show. They, those are kind of easy because you just make sure that your work is actually relevant because I'm sure you get all kinds of crap that has nothing to do with the topic, even though you were very clear with the topic. Because I know that I know that happens from my own experiences, but I'm sort of more interested in the solo show kind of a thing. So, like, if somebody were going to propose a solo show at Nietzsche, did I pronounce it correctly? Almost Nietzsche. Oh, so close. Okay, I tried. I tried though. You tried. What what kind of criteria would say like, okay, that's an exhibition that is relevant to being exhibited at our space? I think maybe that more falls into us saying that we would happily receive, you know, resumes or, or portfolios throughout the year, which is, I don't consider that an open call as such, because to me, with an open call, you go out and you say, we're looking for this, we're looking for this. And then you have some sort of checkpoints that you're searching for. Well, currently on your website, it actually has an open application that just says, here's a floor plan. If you have an exhibition you want to put in there, email us. Yeah. So like, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, I see what you're saying. But this is more of an invitation to just to say that we would happily receive your portfolio if you do have an idea for a like perfect solo show or if you do have an idea for a group show. And this is also because after all, we're only human. We can only be one place at a time. So there's no chance we're going to be able to see whatever is going on out there. You know, everything. We can't keep up with everything. So this is why we have that out. Well, and that's the thing that like, yeah, we as practitioners who create artwork, we think that curators have the pulse, like they're keeping in touch with everything. And we're always sitting around going like, 
but why are they not keeping up with me? I understand <laughs> that some people can feel that. And I mean, we do want to keep up with everything and we do want to be everywhere and we do want to know what every artist is working on right now, just in case it's something super relevant to us, to our exhibition, to the institution, to whatever concept we are working on at that time. That's not possible. It's, I mean, it's physically impossible. And I've, I've aged out of your place. I'm too old, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. So this is why we have that out. Yeah, because I mean, like, I've looked around at places trying to think like, oh, I'd love to do an exhibition at this place. And I, I don't even know where to start to create a proposal. Like, I mean, I mean, I guess the question is sort of like, when somebody writes a proposal like this, so let's say somebody did write a proposal, and let's say it was a good one that you all liked. What did they include in it? Did they include like a budget, a timeline, a like artist statement, like a like how you know visuals, like three D renderings? Like, I mean, what 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 do we even do? How do we approach that? <laughs> well, I mean, if it's well worked through concept and not just a jumble of JPEGs put together and randomly put together in a PDF saying this is my recent work the past ten years. You, of course, make a stronger case for yourself. And if it's a budget, which makes sense, we see that it's something that we afford. Or if we see it, okay, maybe our budgets are not big enough, but this is such a good project that it would receive funding for sure. I mean, all these things, helping it to be a more realistic project would, of course, help. But then in the end, it all comes down to do we think this is an interesting project, and I don't have the parameters for why it would be an interesting project. And, you know, does it make sense within the year, even though even though we don't necessarily always curate, with, you know, this hashtag or this overall, overall theme, we still like to think that a yearly program makes sense in a way. And then, of course, all of us have to agree. There's, there's four of us. It has to be unanimous. I'm tempted to say yes, but uh... <laughs> that's tough to get four people in the art world to all agree on one thing. Yeah, but we are likable, a mass of people, and we usually agree, and we can be one over. We can discuss our way to unanimous decisions. All right. Last two questions that I generally ask everybody. The first one would be: Are you or could you tell me the names of three contemporary artists that you're looking at? I've dreaded this question. You know, it's actually, it's not possible, almost. I have some names. You can name more than three. It's fine. It's just a random number I made up. Yeah, I know. And it's normal to just name three. Okay, fine. I'll change it up for you. Five. There. <laughs> yes. Win. No. One of the ones that I want to mention is actually because I'm really looking forward to, and I'm hoping to go to Bergen this summer to see a solo show by Lars Korfloftus. He's a really good painter. I worked with him before. It's this maybe a bit weird combination of he's portraying big gay men, but he's also painting like old cultural artifacts called Ölbolla in Norwegian. So it's this sort of, it's not a glass and it's not a tray, but it's something that you drink beer from and then you pass it around. As a big gay man. No. <laughs> No, not as a big gay man. So you pass around a get big gay man to drink from? Is that right? No, it's not. It's the two different motifs in his work. I find his work to be something completely different from, you know, from the rest that it stands out from the masses today. And so I'm really hoping to be able to, you know, take the train to Bergen and go see this show. I'm really looking forward to that. And when he was part of a show I curated together with Björn Hatteru at Akshuskun Center three years ago, two years ago, he was showing this small pastel drawings of, again, big gay men taking selfies in the mirror. But I mean, they're so sweet in a way, so nice and so gentle. I mean, they're not sexualized in any way. It, they're just really, really nice. I'm seeing a theme here, but go on. <laughs> oh. The next one I would like to mention is Gelavesh Valadkani, who is Kurdish, and she's using her art practice to speak up for freedom of speech. 
but not in this, you know, big shouting, demonstrative way. She's actually making really delicate, detailed embroideries with her own hair. So she's taking strands of her hair and she's embroidering these statements. And she's met quite a lot of, how to say, resistance from the Turkish government because, of course, they are anti-everything Kurdish. You don't say. No. She's been censored on Instagram. I've been censored on Instagram after posting an artwork by her and hashtagging the activist who was behind that whole statement. And she's experienced the same. And recently she made this big artwork drawing, which has been shown in the streets in Oslo, portraying, I think, women in Kurdistan in Rujava. And then the Turkish embassy demanded that this was removed because it's against sort of them and, uh, yeah. I I lived in the Middle East. I'm aware of the sort of them and the other kind of battles, yes. I don't agree with any of it, but yeah, whatever. no, it's completely bullshit. Everything. Well, I, the, I mean, the the differences between them are so minimal. The, 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 it's just ridiculous. I, so, yeah, I'm I'm not a fan ac- across the board of any sort of party, organization, culture disliking another one for any silly, minute reason. I think that. that and I'm sure I'm going to get so much hate mail for that one saying that like the Turkish Kurdish thing is a minute thing, but whatever. That's fine. I will stick to my position. Yeah. Another interesting painter that I'm currently looking at is Janneke Schönning. She's not only painting nature and landscape, but she's painting with nature. So she's living in Oslo, but outside of the city center in Sörkedalen. And she has her studio in the woods behind the house and she's working outdoors all year round. And she leaves the paper outside overnight and she's making watercolors in the river, not just with water. And the fact that she's leaving them, you know, overnight and during whether it's cold or warm is that you can see frostbites or trails from snails and you know it has all these coincidences that you're not really as an artist she sorts of gives some of her authorship to nature and of course this also relates to to me at least this is uh, relates to the tradition of plein air painting but it's something completely different than just standing there painting the sunsets or you know the fancy mountains or whatever I find it quite fascinating and also a bit brave in a way, giving up control in that way. Sorry, I laughed because I love the term fancy mountains. <laughs> I'm thinking of a, mo- a mountain in a nice ball gown or something like a fancy I was going to say big and then, you know, sometimes words just completely escape. Ma- majestic mountains. Majestic. <laughs> fancy sounds very, like, I was picturing them like all dressed up for an evening out. But anyway. Yeah. Now, Janikis's work is literally down to earth, like literally. Cool. She's been showing like massive canvases covered in dirt and paint. And we had to roll them out really carefully so that not all the dirt would fall off because it was part of the work. So straight from the woods into the white cube. Yeah. Yeah. There was somebody in my graduate program that was doing photograms by putting rolls of photographic paper under the water in a stream and then letting the light go through the water and hit the photographic paper and then that sort of just created its own unique thing it was you know fun fun work good work yeah all right did you have one more because you wanted five yeah now this is only three isn't it but i only (laughs) i can go on forever fine keep going i've had it there's this really amazing sculpture sigve knutson He's young, but doing really, really fascinating works. And it's somewhere in between furniture and object, sculptural objects. For instance, if he's making a table, it could also just, you know, just be a sculpture, not having a function. And they have this sort of organic feel to them, whether he's working in wood or aluminum or stone or ceramics. And they all also have this, even though 
I think he works quite intuitively when he begins something. I also once asked him, why did you do this in wood? And why did you do this in stone and those sculptures in aluminum? But then he's like, okay, so this piece of wood was interesting. I wanted to do something with that. And this piece of stone was intriguing. So I wanted to do something with that. And I like that intuitive approach. But then they all, his objects also have this sort of feel that there's something archaic, something, you know, prehistoric almost, even though he's not trying to imitate that in any way. So, yeah, you know, speaking about what we talked about earlier, you know, having this thing within art that is something you can't quite put your finger on, but it's something intriguing. I think his work has that. In a way. Sorry, whenever I hear people describing people's works, I'm always like, would anybody ever talk about my work like that? Like, does my work hit those points? And like, would any, yeah, I'm just, I'm just being selfish and, and egotistical. Go on. No, but hopefully to some people, you do hit all those buttons. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's a ton of people out there who are disagreeing with me completely in these names. I'm sure, absolutely sure. There are a ton of people that disagree with everything that I say as well. So it's perfectly fine that it's your opinion and you have every right to it. Doesn't mean you're, you are correct, but it's your opinion and you're sticking to it. Yes. Okay. I'm going to name one last just because he's amazing. It's Igshan Adams. He's South African. Of course, we worked with him as well. And it's really fantastic to follow him on his journey in the art world. He actually, he works with textile and beads and he's weaving, you could call it carpets, but they're not, of course, they're like two-dimensional textile works and they're imitating prayer rugs, Muslim prayer rugs. By doing this, he's dealing with several aspects by being gay, by being Muslim and what all this means and also living in South Africa with everything that entails in terms of discrimination, racism, segregation, and everything. Then he's just making these most poetical, beautiful pieces. They make you think also, really. All right, lovely. Last little bit would be uh, any advice for the next generation? The next generation of curators or critics or writers or artists or whoever. Whichever one you feel that you have the best advice for. I think the main thing is to just, you know, be active, go get out there. If you want to be a part of this and if you really want to work with this, you have to just work a lot and be around. Make sure that you, you're updated on whatever is happening and say yes to every fun assignment, every fun job, project, whatever comes your way, whether it's poorly paid or not paid at all, or if it's good paid. No, but I'm serious. That's you never know where the next project is going to take you. Okay, wait. Are you just to clarify? You're talking to curators at this point, right? Yeah, mostly. Okay, okay, good. Because I'm thinking like there are some opportunities that people have offered me to exhibit as an artist that I'm like, no, I'm not showing at your coffee shop. <laughs> no, I'm not saying that people should work for free. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. Everybody should get paid for whatever work they're doing. But on the other side, speaking of the next generation and when you're young and you're trying to get somewhere, if you expect to be massively paid for every project you do and, and you're going to say no just because you don't get paid, then you might not get anywhere. And I'm speaking from my own experience. I mean, I've worked so hard for so little money on my freelancing stuff, but good things have come from it. And at some point, it's going to lead you to the next big, massively paid project. It's funny because that kind of conversation always reminds me. There's this photographer I knew years ago, very good photographer. I, you know, his, so his his skills are good. So like, I'm not questioning that. But one day I asked him, I said, "Hey, you want to go out and like take some pictures?" And he's like, um, "No, I don't pick up my camera unless you're paying me." And I'm like, "Well, but it's you're a photographer. Don't you enjoy doing it?" And he's like. No, no, it's my job, and I don't pick it up unless I'm being paid. And I'm like, okay, all right. So you're a different kind of photographer than I am. Yeah, and I totally understand why some people think that. But, I mean, for me personally, I love what I do. I love everything that I'm – I usually say 
if I'm asked about some sort of project, especially then, of course, as a freelancer, and it's something I instantly get encouraged by, or, you know, I get this enthusiastic and, oh, my God, I, I really need to do this, then I say yes before I know <laughs> if I'm paid or not. And maybe that's not a good thing. But then I like to think that I also bring some sort of enthusiasm to the project, which is good also. And you need that to sort of get on. If you're only going to say yes to something because it, you're paid, then you don't have that sort of love for the project, which you need to make it a good one. It's absolutely true. It needs to be passionate. It has to be passionate. Absolutely. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank you for your time as well. It was nice. I hope you are enjoying and learning from the stories, experiences, and advice of our guests as much as I am. If you like the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and a nice comment would be greatly appreciated as well. Please be sure to tell your friends to listen and subscribe. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. Audio editing is done by Jakub Cherne. I am your host, Matthew Doles. And for more information about the podcast and our guests, please visit our website at wisefoolpod.com. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners, Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com. Music